Well, it's possible for pastors to fall out of love with Christmas and Easter. Maybe not so much the message of Christmas and Easter, although that happens too. I mean, it's possible for pastors to fall out of love with the events of the high and holy holidays. For some pastors, it happens because we miss out time with family or travel, and, and I get that. I understand it. For others, it's, it's this pressure to perform. You've got to say something new and fresh. To the most diverse audiences you'll have all year long, at Christmas and Easter, many who show up feel themselves to be insiders, and, and you've heard it all before. And then there are those who show up who feel themselves, sometimes intentionally so, as outsiders. And what should I say? What do you want me to say to you? I'm glad you're here. That's one thing I would say. It'd be daunting to walk into a church, especially if you don't go to one regularly or anyone anytime. I'm glad that you're here. You don't have to feel sorry for me being a pastor at Christmas. It's, it's a good job being a pastor Caring for souls. In my mind, Christmas and Easter are, are, they are, they are the Super Bowl, right? They're the Indy 500. Uh, I, I, I am pumped for Christmas Eve all year long. In fact, there's that scene in the movie Elf where, where Buddy, uh, he's at the department store, and they say, Santa's coming. He says, Santa's coming, right? That's kind of how I feel. Christmas Eve is coming. I love that. But this year, rather than trying to navigate all the pressure to say just the right thing to outsiders and and something new and something fresh to those of you who have heard it all before, I I guess what I want to do just for a few minutes is to briefly tell you what I love about Jesus and the Christmas story and to use just one verse to do so. For the last few weeks at church, we've been teaching through what is often called the prologue to John's gospel Prologue means the beginning, the introduction. It's on page 833. If you have a Bible, you don't have to open it. It's on those Bibles there. And if you want a Bible, you can just take that one tonight if you want one. But, but the prologue, it, it, it sets everything up. Not necessarily resolves everything, but it sets up what's going to happen in the book. The story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his followers, his detractors, all of that. And we save verse 14 for Christmas Eve It goes like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what I want to do just for a few minutes is is tell you what I love about four of those phrases. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, seen his glory, and full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. John begins his gospel, not necessarily in those verses, but in the verses above it, saying this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The point is that the word, later identified as Jesus, is also God himself, John says. He's the co-creator of everything. And if that's true... If the word is God himself, 
and all-powerful and all-present and without beginning and without end. And when he says, let there be light, there's light, and, and all of that and more, if all of that's true, I would have never expected that the word would then become flesh. Like that word to become flesh. How could divinity add humanity to himself? How could the all-powerful become weak and so identify with his people? I love this about Jesus. Consider the next phrase, dwelt among us. It, It would have been one thing if God became flesh and decided to, quote, castle among us. That is, to live in a castle walled off on some hillside with a moat and armed guards. But it says that the word dwelt among us. Jesus chose to pitch his tent among us. That's a literal rendering of the Greek there in verse 14. The word tabernacled among us. That might be an even more literal rendering of the Greek. The tabernacle was this special tent in the Old Testament where God came to dwell and manifest his people, his presence among his people, Israel. The thing about tents, though, they're fragile. They rip easily. If you've ever been hiking in the woods or you've ordered a tent on Amazon, you know you can drop the tent and, and break the poles. Tents get dirty. If you don't take good care of them, they grow mold. And if you camp in the woods and, and it's the middle of the night and you hear outside your tent, right? If you hear that and you're in bear country, no one thinks to themselves, it's good. I'm, I have this nylon tent around me. No one thinks that. When the word became flesh, he drew near. He dwelt among us. He didn't castle. He pitched a tent. He became vulnerable. I'll put it this way. If Jesus had come to the earth in 2020, 2021, he would have caught COVID. Because almost everybody has, right? Some of us caught it worse than others, but, but the word would have gotten toothaches and indigestion. And I love that the word pitched his fragile, fleshly tent among us. And I love that we, as John says next, have seen his glory. There's so many places that the word glory is used throughout John's gospel. Some people who have spent years studying the gospel of John think that the word glory here in verse 14 refers to it all. So, so all the miracles, all the stories, all the teaching, all, all that all that was Jesus. His, all the way that he lived, all the way that he died. And that's certainly true. John is saying we've seen all of it, all of his glory. And yet... As I read John's gospel, there seems to be this particular focus in John's gospel on the glory of Jesus' death. Just to give you one for instance, consider the prayer that Jesus prayed right before he was arrested. We hear Jesus say, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. John 17 verse 1. What is, what is this hour that has come? It's going to bring God glory. It's the hour of his crucifixion. 
And, and this linking together the sacrifice and death feels to me amazingly unexpected. All the glory of our world is the glory of winning, the glory of conquering and overcoming through power. But here we see that God views the path to glory as one that goes down before it goes up. Don't you love that about Jesus? Finally, there is the word, the phrase that John says, that the word was full of grace and truth. I love that image of fullness. Some of you at Christmas dinner are going to eat a lot. And then you're going to have cookies. And then you're going to have eggnog or whatever your favorite holiday treats are. And there's going to come a point where you're going to say, I'm so full. Don't poke me, right? Someone's going to poke you and say, don't poke me, I'm so full. The passage here says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's like this cup of water that that just gets so full that there's like this rim at the top. And just to bump it, when when you bump Jesus, what comes out? Grace, steadfast love, faithfulness. Don't you love that about Jesus? I don't know if you know that about him. It's true. The word became flesh. The word pitched his tent as among us. The word showed us the glory of living and dying and rising for others. And finally, the word was full of grace and truth. What do you think about all that? What do you think about that? I've always loved the author's note at the beginning of a book called Blue Like Jazz. The book probably isn't the book I'd pull off the shelf to find the most precise theological reflections. (laughs) It's not what I would probably go to that book for, but I love the note at the beginning to readers. The author writes this, I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside a theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing a saxophone. And he goes on to say more, which I'll read in just a moment. But, but that's the setup. There's, there's a man and he's, he's coming home or he's going about town and he's minding his own business, indifferent to what's happening around him, but not, however, indifferent to jazz. He doesn't like jazz music, he says. I'll read it again. I never liked jazz music because jazz music doesn't resolve. But I was outside a theater in Portland one night when I saw a man playing a saxophone. Then the author writes... I stood there for 15 minutes and he never opened his eyes. After that, I liked jazz music. Sometimes, he writes, you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It's as if they are showing you the way. Again, sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. It is as if they are showing you the way. As I said, the last few weeks at church, we've been teaching through this prologue of John's gospel, these first 18 verses that set up the rest of the book, the story of Jesus, his origins, his birth, his life, his miracles, his message, his followers, his detractors, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And the prologue doesn't necessarily resolve anything, but it it sets all of that up. And I would say... It's very much like the author John is standing on a street corner 
exalting in the beauty of the word of God, meaning Jesus, for 18 verses without ever opening his eyes. In the beginning was the word, he writes. The word was with God and the word was God. He, the word, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light gives light to everyone was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him he came to his own and his own people did not receive him but to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know. I don't know if you consider yourself more of an outsider or an insider. I don't know if any of that matters tonight. I don't know if you're busy going about your life largely indifferent to Jesus. Or maybe perhaps you've thought about Jesus and you don't like him. My hope and prayer for you this Christmas is that you would see John loves Jesus. I believe because Jesus first loved him. And maybe tonight as you watch and listen to John play the scales of the glories of Christ, the word, full of grace and truth, became flesh, pitched his tent among us. Perhaps John might be showing you the way. And if that happens, if you begin to fall more and more in love with Jesus, the real Jesus, the one who to know him is to be, have grace and upon grace poured out on you, maybe if that happens to you, then maybe you can help show someone else the way. Maybe even this Christmas. I want to pray and invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in what is one of my favorite, not Christmas songs, but songs that fits really well at Christmas. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that who you truly are is grace and mercy and joy and light and life. Lord, I pray tonight that through this Christmas service, it would be as it were we bumped into you and you would pour all of that into us. Not because we deserve it, but because you are good. We pray this in Christ's name.